this is Bob McConnell, co-founder co of the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation, and uh, uh, I you just should have just seen a slide on your screen. Uh, there is a button down at the bottom of your screen that looks like a globe, and you will want to click on that and pick the language you want to hear this broadcast in, English or Ukrainian. And once you've done that, you will hear that language for the rest of the program. Uh, it is uh, my uh, pleasure to introduce the panel. And I will introduce General Breedlove, and then he will take it from there. General Breedlove is a retired Air Force four-star general. Phil, as he prefers to be called, last served as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. General Eisenhower was the first commander of uh, NATO and led our forces at D-Day. Phil was the 17th commander, allied commander of NATO, where he commanded the military forces of 28 NATO nations. An F-16 fighter pilot for most of his career, Phil had eight major commands, spanning both peace and combat. He commanded the F-16 squadron, F-16 group, three F-16 wings, third Air Force, U.S. Air Forces in Europe and Africa, U.S. European Command, and then finally NATO. General Breedlove chairs the Front Frontier Europe Group, which is a part of the Middle East Institute and focuses on the Black Sea region. Phil is also a distinguished professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Phil, the mic is yours, my friend. Great, Bob. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience for being here today with us. We have an amazing panel uh, to discuss with us this morning. And I'll introduce them all in just a moment. We're going to ask each to give us about five minutes or so of opening remarks. And then I'm going to start with some questions. And then most importantly, we'll try to save time to get to the uh, audience. So please go to the Q&A section and type your questions in there if you have them as we move forward into today's uh, conversation. So we are blessed to be joined today by the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, Prime, Deputy Prime Minister Stefanishnaya. And we look forward to her remarks and giving us a view of what's going on now in Ukraine. We also have Yulia Yoga. She works with me at Frontier Europe. She is a senior fellow, and let me tell you, she is a thought leader in this part of the world. Uh, hailing from Romania herself, she is very much a part of what's going on uh, in this part of the world, and we're happy to have her. She is also now an associate professor at Georgetown. And then two of my closest friends in life, who I think are both uh, real um, experts in what is going on militarily and in the security world of the Black Sea and Ukraine. First, uh, Ben Hodges, who commanded the US Army Europe when I was the NATO commander and now serves at SEPA. And Glenn Howard from the Jamestown uh, Foundation and Glenn, 
frankly, his organization probably has the best insight into what's going on on the ground in and around Ukraine of any. So we are blessed today with a, a great panel. I look forward to getting to them for some questions. But first, Madam Deputy Prime Minister, we pass you the floor for your opening remarks. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure and uh, uh, honor to, to have the possibility to get engaged into this discussion. And you know that Ukraine has been extremely vocal and, um, uh, and active uh, in terms of paving the way towards uh, um, uh, shaping up the, uh, the strategy, the transatlantic strategy related to the security in the Black Sea and Ukraine has advocated strongly to uh, be the advocate basically of the security in the Black Sea region uh, and in the Black Sea region. And I'm happy that uh, this discussion also uh, is supported and encouraged by, uh, by, by think tanks and such respective platforms as Ukraine in Washington. So, um, as you've rightly mentioned, I think it would be very important to start with the update on the situation on the ground. And, um, uh, and uh, so I'm giving the, uh, the brief overview on the situation uh, from our perspective. So um, Russia still shows the real de-escalation. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, while no will to recognize it is there. Russia has withdrawn only a few thousand of uh, its troops from the border with Ukraine. Most of the weapon systems and the military equipment remain deployed close to the Ukrainian border. So it's just like the, uh, a bit of imaginary uh, de-escalation and withdrawal of troops. The overall trends of the Russian forces as Ukrainian borders and in the Crimea includes up to 110,000 servicemen in general. So um, even before the recent escalation, the number of Russian troops along the state border of Ukraine in the temporally occupied territories were extremely high. But the, um, the willingness uh, of Russia to test the ground and to test the base, uh, base related to uh, the unity the international partners can show in the face of the uh, real military escalation and the threat Russia has clearly stated in terms of escalation, uh, in terms of the escalation of the situation at the border um, with uh, with Ukraine, um, has uh, has been successful from the Russian perspective. But the immediate reaction of the international community have really pushed for a serious uh, decision related to withdrawal of the of the servicemen from the territory. So um, when it comes to the ceasefire introduced uh, uh, in July 2020, uh, it was violated since this period by Russia for more than 1,300 uh, 1, times, including with the use of misprohibited mis weapons. So uh, only in April 13th, Ukrainian soldiers were killed on the front line, and it was uh, it was more than 10 soldiers, uh, and in the highest number for the last two years. So um, uh, it is also um, 
very clearly seen that Russia is no way ready to uh, to establish any kind of the dialogue, and it is clear, clearly proven by uh, a continuous uh, rejection of access of the Red Cross as well as the UN representatives to the occupied territories of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk regions. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that there is no other reason but the willingness to hide its numerous violations of the human rights and um, and giving no actions to confirm, uh, to witness another confirmation that Russia continues to restrict the freedom of movement and uh, uh, continues its enhanced military presence on the occupied territories of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, while recent uh, recent escalation has also uh, paved the way to uh, strong international coordination and reinforcement of the support of international partners to sovereignty and territorial integrity of our country. And of course, Ukraine is grateful to its international partners for their decisive and timely response to the recent escalations. We, of course, urge partners not to lose vigilance and carefully monitor the situation. And um, what is more important, stay, stay ready to take effective measures to deter Russia, first of all. Uh, uh, from our perspective, we consider that recent situation uh, as yet another escalatory step and do not exclude that the Russians will respond in a very in the same very tactics again particularly in september in a face of the new uh, elections to the russian state uh, duma and we know that for putin basically uh, military uh, methods are one of the most effective uh, proven to be one of the most effective in, in the light of the new elections period uh, trying to um, uh, to build on the uh, on the uh, support of the population. So uh, when it comes to closer to the topic of our discussion is the security in the Black and Azov Seas. Um, it is very important to say that along with the military buildup um, uh, over Ukrainian border uh, on land uh, in the next Crimea, Russia has escalated also at the sea. In particular, Russia transfers warships from the Caspian Sea to the strengthens military capabilities in the Azov Black Sea region. Social and economic destabilization of Ukraine's coastal regions remains among the goals of Russian aggression against Ukraine. It has, has been proven by a number of very vivid, uh, clearly, uh, clear, clearly noticed and uh, confronted violations and uh, manipulations caused by Russian Federation. First of all, Russia continues to transform Crimea and surrounding waters into a military hotspot of the Black Sea and Azov Sea region. Um, uh, it has transferred additional sh ships to the Black Sea and Azov Sea recently also announced the closure of the part of the Black Sea under the pretext of the military exercises, which has basically uh, closed the only um, open arteria for the trade flows uh, to, the, uh, to the territory of Ukraine. Uh, it is also uh, very clear that Russia justifies this closure also by saying that it plans to conduct military maneuvers, but the naval ships it is keeping in the area around the uh, around this territory easily could be used to attack Ukraine from from the sea directly. Um, it is very important that uh, even in the face of this clear threat to. Uh, 
unwavering um, uh, uh, and open support, an open uh, open aggression from the Russian Federation, Ukraine seeks and can be a strategic partner partner of NATO in the Black Sea. And as I was mentioning from the very beginning, it's very important that the transatlantic um, uh, union. Uh, would seek to uh, to develop the new strategy for the security in the Brexit region as a, as a strategy to strengthen the southern flank of NATO in the light of the new threats which has been um, materialized since 2014 with the uh, increased uh, increased uh, threats from Russian side, but also following the annexation of Crimea. In the light of this, we are ready to intensify cooperation with NATO and allies in the Black Sea region. We also call uh, upon allies to prioritize the Black Sea in their strategies. We are ready to cooperate to strengthen the capabilities of the Ukrainian Navy, improve situational awareness in the region, and are ready to maximize the exchange of information and strengthen our capabilities in the cybersecurity. It's very important that over the last year, since Ukraine has, has gained the status of enhanced opportunity partners, we've built a very strong um, uh, a very strong agenda related to exchange of information, uh, increased participation in the military training, and etc. So, um, so uh, by the end of the day, uh, uh, Ukraine stands ready to uh, to defend its territorial integrity and sovereignty. But we are also looking forward for transatlantic union to shape up the the strategy for the Black Sea security, ensure the increased presence in the of the military presence in the Black and Azov Sea, but also um, will uh, uh, will build on uh, a Marshall plan for the stability in the region as it is exists unfortunately in Russian Federation to uh, to bring more instability in the region. So we're looking forward to contribute to a stable development of the whole Black Sea region and uh, looking forward to do it together with the allies in NATO. Ma'am, thank you very much. And there'll be much to follow up and questions on things that you have brought up. Dr. Yoja. Thank you, General Breedlove, and thank you for the, uh, to the Ukraine-US um, Foundation for, for putting together this very um, important and, and, um, and timely discussion. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really the right um, time to talk about Black Sea strategy in the context of Russian aggression and uh, in the context of, of more solidarity, transatlantic solidarity building up which we're trying to contribute um, with uh, here today. Um, I've been looking at the Black Sea region in, in security terms for frontier Europe, as, as General Breedlove uh, mentioned earlier, and, and before that um, for, for many years in, in different contexts. And there's two things that I think we need to keep in mind when we think about Black Sea strategy. Um, the one thing um, when it comes to geopolitics of the region is that we need to understand that the Black Sea region is highly strategic. It's the meeting point of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, increasingly dominated by power competition over the last years, if not decades. It's Russia's access to warm water. It's Europe's only land access to energy that avoids Russian and Iranian territory. And it's also China's land route to European markets that avoids Russia and Iran. The other thing, that um, the Black Sea is, is that it is um, the transatlantic security community's weakest and at the same time hottest spot. 
Russia has been pursuing full spectrum warfare against regional democracies and militarizing the Black Sea region with increasingly offensive capabilities to project power south. And before that, uh, Moscow made sure that the development and democratization of the region is impeded as such. Um, China at the same time is consolidating its presence in the Black Sea region through strategic investments and as an alternative to Russia for regional democracies that often do not have a Western alternative on, on, on certain issues. Though the United States Black Sea allies like Georgia, Romania, and of course, Ukraine, have freed themselves from Soviet exploitation and captivity and have now become frontline allies and, and democracies in the region. When we talk about Georgia and Ukraine, they're still bearing the brunt of Russian aggression without the West security guarantees. Um, and despite increasing Western, mostly American presence in the region, the Black Sea is marked by the entire spectrum of security challenges caused by Russia from the outset the sovereignty, integrity, and independence and democracy of these countries um, that regained their statehood at the end of the Cold War was obstructed through Russian state con um, staged conflicts known as frozen conflicts all over the Black Sea region. And these conflicts created direct sources back then, 30 years ago, for military, political, economic, social, and environmental insecurity and impeded the development of the entire region. Now, since Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, um, Russia has continuously increased in the region its, its aggression through cyber attacks, blackmail, sanctions against regional democracies, embargoes, political interference, influence operations, Russian transnational oligarchization um, that is fueling regional corruption, economic choking, as we see now with, with Ukraine, and disabling free navigation that the um, Deputy Prime Minister just mentioned. In the Black Sea, we have um, actually to invent names, new names and new concepts for Russian aggression. We have borderization. We have passportization. We have um, Russian colonization now. And then Russia reignited or created military conflicts in the extended region, 2014, 2015, 2018, and 2020 most recently. In other words, Ukraine is the current hotspot of Russian aggression as we see it here from the West and in the international media. But Russian aggression is not only a Ukrainian problem, but a regional one. And it's not just a military um, problem, but a full spectrum problem. Um, now we all know that an inherent problem of um, regional Russian aggression is that um, not everyone understands it as it is. Um, especially in the Black Sea region, unlike the Baltic region, there's no common threat assessment. Um, and we deal with countries that have more accurate threat perceptions of Russia outside of NATO than some NATO members in the region. So NATO's enhanced forward presence in the Baltic and the tailored forward presence without military um, tripwires or a shared common monetarization and defense mechanisms for the Black region, in my opinion, is a strategic anomaly. And the only explanation is really the lack of a common threat assessment, 
both in the Black Sea countries, as well as in Europe overall. Um, as we look at the region, we um, see um, a high American presence. We see Canadian and UK increasingly present, but no Western European powers there. Um, but transatlantic security's weak spot still remains the Black Sea region. And so the key to develop a common threat assessment in the urgency of Black Sea insecurity is really a, a, an issue that is rising every day. And I think um, the solution to this problem is to think in terms of coalitions of the willing and uh, the, or the willing or the able or both to create efficient deterrence, deterrence mechanisms um, first and foremost against Russian aggression. Building solidarity through opt-ins and opt-outs in terms of these coalitions um, also avoids spoiler scenarios as we've seen in 2016 when Turkey and Bulgaria both vetoed for different reasons the NATO Black Sea Fleet um, uh, for, for the region. So we need to identify common Western threats interests and formulate a common strategy to contribute to a common operating picture for the transatlantic security community in the Black Sea region and a comprehensive approach towards regional security challenges that we talk about um, in the Black Sea, especially in light of current NATO efforts um, towards a new strategic reassessment following Russia's continuous military buildup um, recently now in April and aggression in Eastern Europe, as well as China's increasing strategic presence in the region, we need to consolidate transatlantic security in the Black Sea region and also prevent um, strategic alignments that counter Western security in the region. So what we can do, and with that, I will wrap up, um, in, in terms of changing the West's understanding and um, presence in the Black Sea region, there's really two things that we can do, in, in my opinion. First is to acknowledge that the Black Sea is the um, transatlantic security's weak spot, and that Georgia's invasion in 2008, Ukraine's invasion in 2014, and seven years of su subsequent war, the subsequent militarization of Crimea, even Russian, Russia's intervention in Syria, the Azov crisis in 2018, um, the illegal deployment of Russian troops in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020 with no objection from the West, um, this was just a few months ago, the military buildup in 2021, they're all connected along with what I mentioned earlier, transnational oligarchy that fuels Black Sea corruption, political interference, cyber warfare, propaganda, blackmail, Russian sanctions against democracies in the region, embargoes, etc. They're all part of the same Russian pattern of aggression in the larger Black Sea region, and that given all of this, um, there is more to come um, if we look at, at recent history. Part also of this strategic reflection is to acknowledge that Russia's aggression abroad has far exceeded that of the Soviet Union um, back then in the Black Sea and actually in the whole transatlantic space, including here in DC. So my esteemed American colleagues that are part of this discussion and, and participants, I don't think need, that they need reminding that the second Russian intervention abroad or Soviet intervention abroad in Afghanistan and Americans, uh, America's pushback has won us then the Cold War. And now we're facing something that to some extent is actually worse. So the second point is that we need to develop a Black Sea regional strategy for the West that addresses and aims to deter 
all these aspects of Russian aggression in the region and develop security cooperation mechanisms. And this is maybe the most important point that enable Georgia and Ukraine to have access to Western defense, monitoring mechanisms and their armed forces to become more interoperable with ours to help them maintain at least what is left of their territory against a Russian uh, regional superpower aggression. So opt-outs for potential spoilers, which would work also to build solidarity. And in, the, in this context, in this RIPE context with Turkey and Bulgaria, increasing their threat perception, this is even more timely, and opt-ins for non-NATO members in the region that bear the brunt of Russian aggression. Um, and then last but not least, I would just like to stress the importance of this event and thank the organizers again um, for such a timely conversation in the context of the NATO um, a reassessment of, of its strategy, because we need more strategic thinking, more political willingness, particularly to be able to bring security to Ukraine and to the Black Sea region. And my hope, and with this I'll, I'll end my, my um, uh, initial remarks, is that um, through this panel and, and my esteemed colleagues here um, uh, today um, and, and uh, prominent um, US and Ukrainian voices, we will be able to make the Black Sea region more of a focus of the NATO strategic review that is upcoming. Thank you. Thank you very much. General Hodges. Sure, thank you. Three points. Uh, first, the, the situation as it really is. Uh, we cannot be fooling ourselves that there has been a de-escalation, that the, that the Russians have gone back to barracks. I thought Vice Prime Minister Stefano Sheena was exactly right. This, this is all deception, classic Russian effort to make us think that it actually is over. I, I live in Frankfurt and I could hear the sighs of relief all the way from Berlin of like, oh God, thank you, it's, it's all over. When in fact, it's not. This is just a continuation of what started with their invasion of Georgia. They saw that the West did nothing after they invaded Georgia. They saw that the West did nothing after the Assad regime jumped back and forth over President Obama's red lines in 2013. And then they saw that the West did nothing of substance after the invasion in 2014. And in fact, 35 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed this year alone during a ceasefire put in place by Berlin and Paris, and we've done nothing. And so what the Russians are doing is gonna continue until we stop them. I'm very disappointed in our allies in Berlin and London, Paris, and in Brussels. And hopefully the Biden administration will uh, light a fire and get them moving again. This water crisis in Crimea, is only going to get worse as the summer heats up. Secondly, U.S. government. I thought it was so important that our president made a policy statement in his first week saying that Ukrainian sovereignty is a priority for the United States. That is, that is an important policy statement. The problem, of course, is that we have no strategy that underpins that policy statement without resources and prioritization. So this is something that's gotta be done. I, I was happy with Secretary Blinken's visit, thought it was very constructive. Uh, it's the beginning of the development of the mechanisms, the necessary mechanisms for a meaningful bilateral agreement between the United States and Ukraine. The United States will have to bring along the rest of the allies. There's no point in talking about NATO membership now until the US and Ukraine have sorted out those mechanisms. The third and final point is 
a couple of practical steps that I think should be taken. First, we have to realize we are in competition and it's not just in Ukraine. It is exactly as Yulia talks about, there's a regional, it has to be a strategy for the region. Ukraine is not an island. We care about Ukraine, not only because of the great people there, but because it's attached to other countries around the Black Sea. And the uh, competition has to span diplomacy, information and economy, not just military. The Black Sea is what our friend Ricky Ellison calls the cauldron of competition. Some specific things that need to happen. The Black Sea nations have got to work together much more effectively in every way. In Washington, D.C., you never, ever see anything where you have Romania and Ukraine, for example, working together, or Ukraine and Georgia working together, and certainly, unfortunately, with Turkey. It's going to take these nations working together to elevate the noise and attract more attention in Washington and also in Brussels. Secondly, seize the initiative. How, how do we seize the initiative? Why are we always talking about what the Kremlin is doing? Why are we always reacting to what the Russians are doing? We should be taking steps to make the commander of the Black Sea Fleet feel very, very uncomfortable in his illegal base in Sevastopol. I'm talking about unmanned uh, maritime systems that are good for anti-submarine warfare and for mine, countermine efforts, uh, installing weapons systems like Ukraine has started to do uh, that can range uh, ships out at sea at distance. We should also, uh, I agree with Ambassador Bill Taylor, uh, Ukraine should be a, a major non-NATO uh, ally. We should do this to change the discussion, to, to send a signal to our Ukrainian friends, but also to the Kremlin that Ukraine is important to us. And then finally, I would say that we have got to figure out a way uh, to help Ukraine do things uh, internally. Instead of just always saying Ukraine needs to clean up corruption, that's not helpful to anybody. I think some specific things, and my number one at the top of the list would be give the RADA oversight over the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense budget, much the way the United States Congress has oversight over our Department of Defense. Sir, thanks. Outstanding, Ben, thanks. Glenn, over to you, my friend. Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, and I'd like to say thank you to uh, uh, Bob McConnell and Nadia for inviting me to today's event and appreciate all the, the good work that you're doing. Uh, I know it sometimes is a, is a very tough job, uh, but you're always constantly trying to push the boulder up the mountain here with Ukraine and, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Um, I'm going to take kind of a, a, a contrary perspective uh, opposed to what I've just heard from the other presenters who I respect and, uh, and admire. Um, but I think that we need to uh, we need to kind of sober our approach to Ukraine a little bit in terms of what we see in the Black Sea, ver what we've called as expectations versus reality. Um, I think we all have had expectations since November of 2018 during the Kerch Strait incident uh, where uh, Russian warships attacked uh, um, a couple of Ukrainian gunboats and created a major crisis uh, in the Black Sea. And that kind of, uh, since then in November 2018, it put a lot of focus on the Black Sea. Uh, but what I've seen is, is that there's been little in reality has been done since 2018 um, uh, to kind of uh, focus our attention on the Black Sea. We've danced around the issue uh, and we've kind of 
moved in that direction, but this is very much a, an issue where we, we really haven't really done a whole lot uh, to deal with that. And, and, um, and, and the blame can fall both on NATO and it's also on different administrations and it can also fall on Ukraine. And, uh, and I think that that is, uh, we have got to put more, um, uh, more focus on this area in terms of tangible goals. Uh, I think that, you know, the title of today's event uh, and this panel is Black Sea, whose is it? And my response is that it's ours to lose because what kind of deterrence policy do we want against Russia and what type of deterrence policy will we pursue? And ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, we've been fighting and arguing about whether Ukraine should get lethal weaponry, what type of strategy should the U.S. to do uh, to help Ukraine. Uh, we saw uh, kind of what I call the BB gun approach um, and then we, with the Obama administration, then we moved into the Trump administration and we saw Ukraine actually get the javelins. Uh, so we saw moving from one direction to more of more kind of lethal weaponry for Ukraine. But the problem here is that Ukraine has not met the expectations uh, in terms of what it's been doing. Because when you get a javelin missile, you have to have uh, a general staff and a military leadership that knows how to use a javelin in warfare. You don't just order a, uh, someone to go into the field and then deploy it, you have to know how it's used operationally. And so our problem has been is that we kind of want to have these quick fixes to Ukraine where we keep giving them toys and gadgets and then we say, we let them go do the job. And I think that that's the problem is that we're, our expectations for Ukraine are not uh, at a level where they have, to, they have to make the hard choices and do things to help themselves. And a case in point is, is uh, I very much respect the ambassador, uh, the Ukrainian presentation earlier, but, you know, we can, we can talk all we want about Ukraine joining NATO, but you're not going to get into NATO with a Soviet trained military. And you cannot get into NATO with uh, military officials in Ukrainian Ministry of Defense who don't speak English. You don't get into NATO uh, without an ambassador at NATO. And I would point out the Zelensky government has not had an ambassador at NATO since 2019. So again, you can, you can walk the talk and, and you can talk big, but you, you know, you're going to have to do something here that try to, uh, to match what you're doing with Ukraine in terms of your capabilities. Now, we have seen one of the largest Russian military buildups uh, in Europe and against Ukraine in over a decade. Um, and we've seen in the backdrop of this Russian military buildup against Ukraine, we have seen uh, Defender 2021 exercise going on in Europe uh, with NATO, a very, very important milestone for NATO. But what was Putin's response? Well, Putin's response is, was not to counter NATO in Europe somewhere in the Baltic, but he said, if you're going, uh, going to carry out NATO Defender 2021, I'm going to launch one of the largest military buildups in our history against Ukraine. Uh, and to quote uh, Phil Breedlove's favorite general and strategist, Jomini, uh, this is what they call a concentration of force. And this concentration of force was basically Putin's answer to saying, well, you wanna do something in Europe, I will, take, I will take out Ukraine and there won't be anything you can do against that. And we saw the US response with the Biden administration not with sending what we previously saw Aegis class destroyers sent to the Black Sea. What we saw is what I call the BB gun approach with Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton uh, 
being sent to the Black Sea. And if anything, we did not uh, repair to deploy and actually order transit through the Straits of two DDG class, Aegis class destroyers with the Roosevelt. Uh, and then at the last minute, those destroyers were hauled back in the, the Mediterranean. That is not what I call a deterrent approach. And this is what I'm worried about in terms of US strategy is, is Ukraine being held subservient to larger US objectives with Russia uh, in terms of we're all looking at the, 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 the Biden-Putin summit. So again, we need to be more vigilant in what we're doing. We need to think of deterrence and more, um, and I, I whole, wholeheartedly applaud uh, the idea of long-term strategy and goals in the Black Sea, but right now our strategy is immediate. Ukraine has no Navy. Ukraine has two island-class patrol boats and about a handful of Gyrza gunboats, and that's it. That's the only thing defending Odessa, okay? So when we send a, a, a Coast Guard vessel like the Hamilton into the Black Sea, um, that is not going to stop the Russian Navy from steaming into Odessa. So we have to think more in terms of a long, not just a, a long-term, but an immediate approach in terms of what we're going to do. Uh, we're also seeing a, what I call a policy disconnect in Washington, where we have groups of experts uh, recommending uh, all types of weapon systems for Ukraine. Uh, some people suggested, well, in, in Yermak, uh, uh, the Ukrainian minister called for uh, uh, patriots being sent uh, to Ukraine to bolster its defenses. And, we, and as anybody in General Hodges can tell you, and General Burila can tell you, we don't have many patriots to send to uh, Ukraine. And, and again, this is grandstanding where Ukrainian policy is, is trying to play to domestic politics inside of Ukraine. And it's not doing simple things like activating its national reserves and its national guard. It's not activating, activating calling up its, uh, its reserve forces in a way to counter Russia. In other words, it's trying to calm people down. It's trying to cater to the domestic opinion inside of Ukraine. Uh, and not antagonize anyone and get anyone worked up. And it's Ukraine's role is to defend itself, and it's Ukraine's role is to activate its reserves, test its military, and show that it's prepared to defend itself. But instead, Ukraine kind of took this very softball approach um, to dealing with Russia, and, and I put the blame on President Zelensky for this, uh, because he's still trying to get his meeting with Putin. And so uh, I am all for a Normandy-style type of discussions on resolving it, but deterrence is nothing without a threat or even a, the, the sphere of, of using uh, deterrence as a military capability and deterrence against Russia. And we've got to look at that. Now, part of Russia's strategy in the Black Sea is what I call the bow constrictor strategy, where they have steadily, with the closure of the Sea of Azov and the Kerch Straits, they have um, basically cut off Ukraine from the Sea of Azov, and now they're implementing this bow constrictor strategy uh, against Ukraine, where they're uh, creeping, uh, creeping the annexation through the Black Sea, through the Tavrida gas rigs that are being floated out further and further out to sea. They have their eyes on Serpent Island, uh, and it's going to be very easy for, for them to close the sea lanes to Odessa, which is one third of Ukrainian GDP comes out of Odessa. Uh, and what you have with Ukraine and their Minister of Defense, who, by the way, has not made one single trip to Washington. You would think in the middle of a crisis, you would get your Minister of Defense on a plane and head to, to Washington and meet with uh, Lloyd Austin and start talking, at least give the, create the impression that you're ready and talking to the United States, and we don't even see that.
So again, what we see with this kind of uh, activity of Russia, we're not seeing a lot of measures in place. You've seen the Ukrainian Minister of Defense Tehran instead talking about building a, a naval corvette program so that in 20 years you may have corvettes and a naval warships capable of countering Russia. Um, and so you see long-term solutions to domestic problems by creating employment. But the real problem is the Ukrainian Navy has been advocating the Mosquito Fleet uh, concept, naval concept and strategy they've wanted to put into place uh, to get two Mark VI attack boats. Um, these, are, these are basically Ferraris uh, of, of, ma of major coastal vessels that can really complicate Russian uh, naval strategy and planning in the Black Sea. And so what in this strategy has now been taken by the Minister of Defense of Ukraine. Tehran has taken a very, very slow approach. He's dodging around the issue whether they may get the Mark Sixes or not. Um, but this is something that they need in terms of building out sea denial capabilities in the Black Sea, in the northern part of the Black Sea, which is where the immediate threat is right now. They have got to build out their sea denial capabilities. And so this is the type of thing where the United States can help them. This is where we need to put more, move away from lip service to more of a realities uh, and look focus more on the immediate while also simultaneously engaging on the long term. But I fear, uh, I fear that as Russia implements this type of boat constrictor strategy, uh, that the US administration may fall back into this kind of um, uh, what I call the Jimmy Carter type of approach to deterrence, where we're busy focusing on arms control and focusing on the big picture with Russia and getting the meetings and the summits. And when in reality, we're doing nothing. Uh, and I'm, I was very optimistic and, and encouraged by um, Secretary of State Blinken's trip to, to Ukraine, but I think we've got to do much more. But we really need to build out inside of Ukraine and get them to build a military that is viable, that is capable of deterrence, and it's smart. And instead, we're seeing a very, um, a very kind of uh, very slow approach to how they're trying to deal with the strategy. And that's been very much uh, disappointing to me. And I think Ukraine, if you're going to talk about getting into NATO, at least start sending, you know, take the time and send an ambassador to NATO and get somebody in the loop. So I'll stop there, Phil. Thanks for your time today, and I look forward to questions. Okay, well, we delivered here in getting some thoughts on the table, and I'm sure we're going to have more. Just a short note to our audience. Uh, we're going to have a quick round here where I pass a question to each of our panelists. We'll try to finish that out fairly quickly and get to your question. So go to the question and answer function, type your question in, and I'll try to get at it the best I can. Madam Deputy Prime Minister, we'll come to you first. As I was listening to all of you speak, including your remarks, um, it was clear to me that what we see is a Russia that is bringing broad pressure on Ukraine across all of government, strong diplomatic pressure challenging the Zelensky government, a disinformation campaign about Ukraine beginning to start an offensive against Russia and many other things. Of course, we see the ongoing military deployments and I'm glad that General Hodges and others have pointed out that this withdrawal is all for show and that truly the forces that are and their equipment are not leaving the borders. And then finally, the economic pressure that Russia continues to place 
as it restricts flow in the Sea of Azov and other places. So we see Russia attacking in every element of national power. So ma'am, how do you see Ukraine responding, trying to use all of the tools of Ukrainian capability? And then where specifically in this would you be asking for allies and partners like America and NATO to help? Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And the message on the UN ambassador to NATO is well accepted and, and clearly noted, of course. And hopefully this appointment will take place in the recent months as well. These security procedures are now uh, security clearance are now ongoing. But given your question and basically uh, answering that, I would also uh, to some extent cover some of the comments already uh, already presented by the respective colleagues is, um, as you rightly saying, Russia is trying to attack uh, or attempt to attack not only in a military way, but also taking into account all the possible instruments of hybrid warfare. And it shows that Russia has a clear Marshall plan as regards the destabilization of the situation in the region, uh, distorting the unity of the transatlantic union, but also of the European countries inside in, uh, inside of the continent, what is what would be important for Ukraine is uh, first of all, uh, there's no way to step back on the reforms agenda. Some may say it's uh, slow, uh, it's too slow. Some may say it's too fast or too radical. But the reforms agenda is there, and basically, it's only this year that we've passed through the uh, historical legislation. Uh, related to the reform of the security service, uh, the legislation re uh, related to the reforms procure, um, defense procurement, and also we've launched the first historical corporatization of the military uh, uh, military industry uh, concerns in in Ukraine. So, and uh, if you're looking back to the uh, army we had back in 2014, which was only an army on paper. Of course, now in 2021, we're in, a, in not uh, in a perfect shape uh, as it might have been expected, maybe by international partners. But we're twice uh, or even three times as strong as we were uh, in 2014. And basically, this is uh, exactly the point where uh, why Ukraine was granted the enhanced opportunity partner status because of our large contribution in the collective security. But what is expected from our side is, of course, uh, except of political support, the clear understanding and a strategy for the security in the Black Sea region. And we hope to see this strategy in the NATO 2030 document, which will recently be, will be presented at the summit, which will take place on the 14th of June or maybe at the later stage. For us, it's very important that the uh, the allies would uh, address uh, the issue of the Black Sea security in a very strategic way. And it's very important that Ukraine and Georgia from the very first day have been uh, uh, inter uh, invited to this dialogue and we're ready to contribute for that. But also for us, it's very important that the, uh, the, uh, the Western democracy could show uh, its um, uh, its unity by uh, by offering uh, the uh, the agenda for the stability in the region, both when it comes to European and Euro-Atlantic aspirations of our countries, 
but also uh, we're really happy that we're now at having this discussion in a very historical moment when the NATO is in front of new 10-year period of its development and the U.S. leadership has uh, marked itself uh, as, the new, uh, as a global player who's coming back to the global arena. So, uh, and uh, I think that for us at this stage, it is very important to preserve the international pressure uh, over the Russia to continue the reforms agenda back in our country, but also uh, to enhance our military cooperation with such a strategic partners as uh, United States. And we've already uh, requested to launch the dialogue on the new enhanced military agreement between Ukraine and United States, which could be on its scope, uh, something uh, which would look like uh, as uh, the major non-NATO ally uh, format, but um, probably without these statues, because it is not very much in line into our um, internal agenda. So I will stop at these three points. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Dr. Joja, you made a couple of remarks that really intrigued me, uh, that, the, that we need to realize that this is a strategic region, and that it may be the weakest place for Western alliances, be they EU, NATO, or et cetera. So we see in the North, of course, Ukraine and Russia. And then we see in the South, uh, a troubled um, uh, Turkey. And, and I've heard this described as a region of contradiction, concern, and conflict. I, I would like to, you to remark, I think the West needs to be asking itself some tough questions. I'll assert that Minsk has failed to serve us, that Normandy is not serving us, and that where should the West be in this process? Where should we be involved and how should we be taking place? What is our role? So, um, Doctor, if you could just talk a little bit about what you think should be the strategy or how we should move forward on some of these questions. Thank you, General Breedlove. Um, I think my, my co-panelists have, have emphasized um, already pretty strongly what the United States can do, um, how much it has done and, and how much is, is, is needed um, ahead. Um, I, I would like to balance here and, and do take a moment to acknowledge the fact that if it weren't for the United States in the Black Sea, um, the Black Sea would be a Russian lake. Um, so the, the little security that we have, particularly with NATO membership, um, in my country, Romania and in Bulgaria, we do see, um, we do see some, some significant um, help from the United States. And this also leads me to say um, something that my, my uh, co-panelists have also alluded to, that without the United States um, support and, and leadership in the region and really stepping it up, um, there's just no way to do anything. Um, so taking that um, um, as, as, as a general statement, I would say that I'm not gonna go into, into military because um, Glenn Howard and, and Ben Hodges and you general um, know much more about that. But in terms of geopolitical, I think, um, some of the points um, are relevant in terms of um, what, um, how we can think here in the United States um, geopolitically about the region to step up. 
I think the Normandy format is dead. Uh, and I think many of, of these formats for negotiation are dead for um, two main reasons. Um, Russia is the aggressor and Russia is sitting on the, on the negotiation table. And usually these countries are not, um, the countries that are, are really under question do not have a strong role in, in saying that, in, in saying anything. So I think we need to think about different negotiation formats for Ukraine specifically, but also for other conflicts where we cannot realistically push Russia out and, and negotiate without them, but we need the United States in, in different formats. And that um, leads me to something that um, uh, General Ben Hodges mentioned earlier, um, his disappointment with the West, um, particularly Western Europe. Um, Germany is playing here a, a complicated role as well. And I say that with all my heart being half German educated and living there. Um, if it were for Germany to take lead or continue to, to take lead in the negotiations in the current context in which we do not see any German presence in Kiev. Ursula von der Leyen also from the EU, um, uh, from the EU side has declined an invitation to the Crimea platform. We don't see any visible um, discussions. And in Germany, we see the German Minister of Defense fighting with the German Minister of Foreign Affairs, whether Germany should actually be even delivering defensive weapons to Ukraine. So that's just a non-starting point. And, and that's why we need the United States to to take more leadership in, in the region. And then when it comes to um, what you, General Breedlove, alluded to in terms of the region of conflict and, and um, controversial and opposed sometimes threat perceptions um, and, and um, something that others have said before when it comes to more cooperation um, at the regional level, I do see here a big problem. Uh, what I think um, uh, General um, Hodges said, um, we see no events on Ukraine and Romania, Georgia and Ukraine, um, cooperation, enhanced cooperation on the ground. I think that is needed um, urgently in terms of pushing the argument for Black Sea security. Um, and I think, um, again, unfortunately, it's the United States who has to push for more cooperation because on the ground, we have not had a, a great track record. Um, and then you, the last point um, on Turkey, Turkey is always a question um, in, in, in these conversations that comes up in terms of their strategic alignment and, and the possibility of the United States having to prevent further alignment between the United, uh, between um, Russia and Turkey. But we do see, this is something that I alluded to earlier, we do see um, a timely context with Bulgaria's um, uh, 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 problems in terms of, of spying and high, higher threat perception there. And even in Turkey discussions, at least tentatively, that um, the threat assessment of Russia has increased and that they perceive um, a policy that for the Black Sea region, they have enabled for decades, keeping the West out and keeping it between Russia and Turkey. This is not working because um, Russia is um, now increasingly a threat um, for Turkey. So I know the problem with S-400 is complicated and I do not have a, a comprehensive answer on that, 
But um, in the context of regional cooperation, in the context of the United States having strategic allies that are democracies and frontline states like Romania, like Georgia, like Ukraine, and, and more cooperation, for, for instance, um, that we've seen recently between um, Ukraine and, and Turkey on the Black Sea, I think it's it would be the, uh, the timely fashion to reconsider particularly in the context of, of NATO's um, uh, rethinking of its strategic approach um, for the United States to um, really push for more cooperation on the ground and um, push for more common threat assessment on the ground. Um, so it's it's the United States um, that can do more to, to wrap up, um, but it's also depending on what regional countries and European powers um, can do and should be willing to do um, to increase solidarity and security in the, in the region. Thank you very much. So to Ben and Glenn, I'm gonna give you an impossible task. Try to, try to give me about seven minutes on the following couple of thoughts. I wanna save at least 10 minutes at the end for our, uh, for our um, um, audience to ask, I'll put their questions to you. Ben, I always learn when you speak. But let me challenge you on one thing. Uh, I recently was a little bit chastised when I said about the word competition. I'm not a fan of it, as I think you know. And what I said was, if we are competing and our opponent is fighting, we are losing. And uh, that drew a little fire, but it, I feel it is right. And, I, and so, um, after I pose a question also to Glenn, I'd like you to just address a little bit how you see this as a competition or a fight that we're in, both above and below the line of, of kinetics uh, with Russia and the Black Sea region. Glenn, um, here's a theme I read from you, and if I got it wrong, um, Sorry, correct me, but what I, what I heard from you is that there's a lot of good things going on, but you believe that Ukraine needs to step up and show a little resolve as it prepares itself for uh, this conflict with Russia, and then how it engages the rest of the world, as you spoke about things like ambassadors and so forth. So if I read you correctly, then I'd ask you to just elaborate a little bit more about what that looks like and what do you think it, uh, what it means. So to my two great friends, you got about six or seven minutes, please uh, share your thoughts. I'll take one minute, sir. The, the word is not what's important, whether it's competition or fighting or uh, judo. Uh, what matters is that the United States government has a strategy that employs all the elements of our national power in terms of diplomacy. Uh, competing in the information space, uh, looking for ways to, to draw investment into Georgia, for example, uh, into Romania. You know, I read an article today that said that the president of Ford that runs Ford in Romania talks about the millions of dollars they lose every year because the transportation network in Romania is terrible. So this is why we have to invest so that uh, to help build resiliency in these countries. That's what I mean by competition. Otherwise, the Chinese will show up and say, hey, we'll fix your railroad for you. That, that's what I'm, I'm talking about. And if we convey to the Kremlin and we convey to Beijing that we care about these places, 
then I think we have, a, and then we demonstrate it with action, then I think we'd lower the chance of a conflict because we never competed in the South Caucasus. You now have Russian peacekeepers in Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. So that, that's, and in Transnistria. So that, that's why we, that's what I mean by the competition over. Glenn. Well, you know, we have got, my, my concern is that we, we tend to take this bilateral versus a multilateral approach. I am all for multilateralism. Um, but if you've been looking at what the United Kingdom has been doing in terms of military cooperation with Ukraine, they are way ahead of the United States and they are doing things in a way that are engaging the Ukrainian military. And one of the points that, that they have been very um, building on has been the use of this uh, Shirokolinovska uh, polygon uh, located uh, outside of Odessa, that's a big training ground and uh, a great, uh, great place for training and airdrops and could become a major staging area for NATO. If Ukraine started kind of interacting with the United States in a way uh, that tries to stop talking about NATO and NATO membership, but actually do things to offer facilities inside of Ukraine, because we do need to focus on this kind of uh, surge deployment capabilities. Now, we have, um, right now, you have the NATO response force. Uh, the Turks now have command over the NATO response force this year, which is a great thing because you have a NATO member country that's actively been fighting in a proxy war with Russia and Idlib and also in Karabakh uh, and defeated the Russians. And so you have an active NATO member there. I would, you know, the United States needs to think creatively. We need to do things like uh, uh, for one, we need to get Romania, uh, think about having the NATO response force uh, uh, the, passing the baton off to Romania after Turkey. Uh, we need to think creatively about how we do things in a way of demonstration and resolve, uh, but we're not holding Ukraine to the, or their feet to the fire. And we've got to do some things where we just don't ask them and talk about reforms and talk about doing things, but get them to do things in very uh, strong, tangible results. And my problem and concern is that if we fall back on the multilateral diplomacy first, trying to resolve everything, we're going to be faced with a situation where Ukraine loses control of Kyrgyzstan and the water supply, and we're still sitting around in NATO and Brussels talking about doing something, and then Ukraine loses it uh, because they're looking at NATO and they're looking to us uh, asking us for advice. And that was part of the problem in, in 2014 when Ukraine was losing Crimea and it had 15,000 men on Crimea and, and everybody was asking, well, what do we do? What do we do? Do we fight or do we just, you know, throw up our arms and surrender? And NATO was, uh, you know, involved in discussion. Well, what do we do? You know, so we need to think about what we want from Ukraine, what we want in terms of tangible results that actually lead to, to very solid developments. Um, and I think Romania is a very critical part of what we're gonna do. And things like sending um, um, the striker brigade uh, on a Dragoon ride, and we could put Ben Hodges on the lead vehicle and let him ride off into the sunset in the Shirokland and skip all going as a test ride to show the Russians that if they make a move on anything inside of Ukraine along that northwestern part of the Black Sea, 
the U.S. is going to and NATO is going to get involved. And there's nothing wrong with a staff ride. You know, these types of rides of deployment. You're showing the flag, and I don't see enough showing the flag here and putting the uh, putting the pedal to the metal uh, in terms of what we're willing to do. Right now, I see the United States and Blinken more kind of in this discussion mode about. Uh, uh, stroking Germany's back and letting them get away with continuing the building of the Nord Stream ga two gas pipeline, which will do unprecedented damage to Ukraine. Uh, things like that. Uh, that's that's where they need to put some results and some real um, firm action into their talk. So, okay, to so my panelists, here's your channel challenge. I'm going to read four questions, and then I'm going to start with the Deputy Prime Minister, and we're just going. Pick the one you want to answer. Answer it very briefly because we've got 10 minutes left to go and that's all. So the questions that I'll pose to you. Uh, do you think Russia's military buildup in Crimea and the Black Sea gives Russia A2AD, anti-access area denial, and will that keep the U.S. out? Question two. We know there is no consensus on granting MAP to Georgia and Ukraine between NATO allies. Do you believe Georgia and Ukraine one day can join the alliance without a membership action plan? Question number three, what stops Ukrainian forces from using the javelins now in Southern and Eastern Ukraine? How effective would they be against the Russians? And then finally, why do Ukrainians continue to use the weakness of the army in 2014 as a crutch for not responding to the Russian military actions? I'm not going to read the rest of the question because it's a little pointed, but you get the gist of the question. Okay, we have nine minutes. Uh, Madam Deputy Prime Minister, you are up first. Thank you. I'll, uh, I'll squeeze in for uh, one minute. I think that the membership action plan is something which uh, is important for the allies and to show that uh, Russia has no vote in NATO when it comes to the uh, policy issues. While, of course, membership action plan is not the issue for Ukraine or Georgia to start reforms, it's just to pave way for, uh, the way towards more structured approach to that. But for Ukraine, uh, uh, endorsement of the open door policy is the sign of the strong and united transatlantic community and uh, the sign of understanding that Russia has no vote and has no veto vote in NATO. Excellent. Thank you, man. Dr. Zhezha. Uh, I, I'm going to um, pass the uh, elegantly over the military um, and, and let the experts answer. When it comes to the, the first two questions, very briefly, A2AD, um, yes, it's threatening NATO territory increasingly, but I don't think it's um, productive to talk about a full-on uh, waged conflict. We're talking about A2AD in terms of area denial. Um, we know that um, when it comes to the West, and particularly the United States, there's no question about uh, military supremacy, but I don't think neither on the Russian side nor on the Western side is it constructive to talk about a full-on waged war. We're just talking about areas of influence and how we can deter 
Russians from continuing to build it up in order to um, limit our possibilities of free navigation, of economic development, of democracy. Um, and then to the, to the second questions on the membership action plan in, in Georgia and Ukraine, I don't have much to add along with what uh, Glenn Howard uh, mentioned earlier. And that is um, that Ukraine's and Georgia's military, when it comes to NATO, have to be um, at uh, a higher interoperable level. Um, that is a precondition. But when it comes to overall uh, membership, I don't think it's productive to talk about this um, at this moment in time, neither. First, because we have continued uh, opposition from Western European and Central European countries. Germany and France continue like 2008 to be a problem. Hungary maybe now is a bigger problem and other potential Trojan horses in, in, in NATO. One thing, and then the other thing is when it comes to both Georgia and Ukraine, territorial integrity is something that they have to balance out with a potential NATO membership. So until we talk about full um, spectrum um, uh, integration, I think we need to, going back to my initial points, think about how we can build coalitions of the willing with and without NATO member states that are like-minded and can, can help each other uh, in, in support and um, security. Thank you. General Hodges. Sure, uh, let, me, don't, let me talk Javelin. Uh, the only thing that's stopping employment of Javelin is Ukrainian Armed Forces leadership. Uh, I've spoken to the Pentagon, I've spoken to the US Embassy, and I've spoken to Ukrainian officers. This is a choice entirely made by Ukrainians not to employ Javelin. Uh, I think their reluctance is that they know there are not a lot of them and that if they do employ them, then Russian uh, special forces would immediately begin to come looking for those uh, launchers, much the way the Russians immediately went after the counterfire radar uh, as soon as those were employed. In my view, that's not a reason to not use them, but of course, uh, that's part of the consideration. And I think there may be a reluctance to uh, expose that capability uh, unless it's the right time. But I've spoken to Ukrainian officers that have some very creative ideas for how they could be employed. And I think it could make a difference when, when uh, Russian tanks that are hidden inside the area where they're not supposed to be start bursting into flames. I think that, that would, uh, could have an impact. I didn't quite understand the fourth question about the the army in 2014. I didn't quite understand uh, what you let me Let uh, me read that, Ben, because the, uh, the person who put the question said that it doesn't make sense without the second part. So I will read the whole thing. Why do Ukrainians continue to use the weakness of the army in 2014 as a crutch for not responding to the Russian military actions when a ragtag army of volunteers was able to stop and take the offensive until Russia brought in an overwhelming forced to stop them. What would Ukraine have done without these volunteers? It should be obvious to the most casual observer that Putin and the Russian military leadership does not believe that the improved Ukrainian military is a serious threat. So that's the rest of the question. Okay, well, obviously the, the questioner is entitled to his or her perspective, but that was a completely false uh, assessment of what actually happened. Of course, volunteers played a critical part back in 2014, but there were thousands of actually good, tough Ukrainian soldiers in regular units that fought very hard. 
uh, at huge loss. Um, and Ukraine learned hard lessons away, frankly, that the U.S. Army learns hard lessons at the start of every one of our conflicts. There's no doubt they were totally unprepared. That's unacceptable. But there are a generation of officers now at the colonel and brigadier general level uh, that were young officers and survived those early years. And that's why I am uh, optimistic, not uh, no rose colored glasses here, but I am optimistic that uh, Ukraine has learned and can learn from those experiences. Small, one small pile on, you and I both have been to the Yavrev training uh, area many times. And while we are training Ukrainian soldiers there, I would also say that the Ukrainians are training us on Soviet tactics there. And so we have to be thankful for their hog fart games. Well, and also they, they demonstrated that how to use that counterfire radar. It's better than I ever imagined. Our equipment, they use it better than we do. Uh, and we've also learned from them on how they deal with drones and Russian jamming that I personally never had to deal with before. So to close this up, Madam uh, Deputy Prime Minister, thank you for your remarks. I especially keyed on, you're working on shaping up a strategy and we hope that you will find willing partners in the West. And we hope that America will be a bigger part of helping you bring that strategy to uh, our thinking. And Dr. Joja, you I know are working in, in frontier Europe on such a strategy and a way to think through this and how to shape things. So thank you for your work in that area. Uh, General Hodges, um, between you and Glenn, I think you've kept your fingers on what's really happening in uh, Ukraine and to a certain degree further south into the Black Sea. And we, uh, we are happy that you're staying on the case. I love, uh, Ben, what you said about it's time to seize the initiative and not be reactive. I believe that the West has fallen to only relying on sanctions to deal with Russia. I could not agree with you more. We need to seize the initiative in the diplomatic, informational, and military spaces to add to our economic work in order to bring an all-of-government reply to an all-of-government problem. And Glenn, I appreciate your candor today because there is much to be done. And first, it starts with introspection. Are we doing enough? And are the, the forces of Ukraine doing enough? So I would just like to thank you. There are remarks in the Q&A from the attendees that are thanking you for your frank talk today. And I want to thank you myself on behalf of the organizers for being such a good and wide open panel. Uh, Bob, back over to you. Okay, I think uh, maybe Mr. McConnell is off our session and on to the- I'm next. on, I'm on. There you are, Bob. We're done here. I'm taking my coat off. Um, I thank you very much, all of you, uh, for the, from the uh, U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. Uh, we're very uh, happy and pleased that you attended and that you participated. Uh, we're looking forward to the rest of the conference. As I, as I said uh, at the end of the uh, previous uh, panel, uh, one of the things that really, really can bind our countries and the West to Ukraine is 
when Ukraine um, deals with the corruption in the justice system, property law and so forth and investment, Western American investment gets into Ukraine and there become strong business ties. That will also help the security because our country will be more committed to Ukraine because of those business and, and in, um, investment ties. The rest of this conference for the rest of today and the next two days goes to the creative minds, the innovation that's coming out of Ukraine, the investment opportunities, the business opportunities. So those that are watching, I hope you will watch the rest of the show. Uh, I thank those that have participated. I look forward to further conversations with you and goodbye.